0: Welcome to Fast Talk, the Vela News podcast, and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, managing editor of Vela News. Joined as always by that big dumb horse, Coach Trevor Connor. Don't worry, he calls himself that. There are a lot of different analogies, a lot of different tools that cyclists and coaches have come up with over the years to try to measure or understand one basic concept. We all have a limited amount of energy and to win races, we have to use that energy carefully. Metrics such as calories, kilojoules, watt prime, and FRC are attempts to quantify it. Many top pros just have a feel for it, but ultimately we all have a jar of energy we can use in a race. Some of us have bigger jars, some smaller. But the winner of the race isn't necessarily the rider with the biggest jar. It's the rider who still has a little energy left in the jar at the end of the race. So today, we're going to talk about how to use your jar most effectively to make sure every time you pour a little of that precious energy out, it makes an impact. This is a conversation that goes much deeper than that. We'll also talk about suicidal robots, what happens to you in prison, fighting bears, flow states washing machines dumb horses why rush named a song yyz and how ultimate fighting plays into your off season we'll also at some point talk about bike racing including first why the best rider always wins the race even if they're not the strongest rider number two we'll try to define energy and discuss the pros and cons of trying to measure it number three However you measure it, you have a limited supply of energy. So we'll dive into all the ways you can unnecessarily waste energy, including responding to every move, riding in the so-called washing machine, poor positioning, and riding on the front for no reason. Number four, after we talk about all the ways you can waste energy, we'll flip it around and talk about ways to save energy, including finding the sweet spot in the field and seeking to be bored. Learning to observe the field so you know when it's about to get real and when it's not. Learning to think like a sprinter and why it's okay to sit in. Finally, we'll talk about when it's okay to spend energy, like when you're riding for a teammate, at those make or break moments in the race, or when you smell blood in the water. Our primary guest today, who's looking to be our most frequent guest of all, is the always informative Colby Pierce. Racer, coach, bike fitter, thinker, tinkerer and one of the most thoughtful and inquisitive bike racers we know. Along with Colby, we talk with Seth Coos, winner of the 2018 Tour of Utah, who rides for the Jumbo-Visma, or Yumbo-Visma, World Tour team. Finally, we'll touch base with another Canadian and World Grand Fondo champion, Bruce Bird, who talks with us about how to read the field. With that, fill that cookie jar with lots of cookies and get ready to eat them one by one. Let's make it fast.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by WHOOP. The WHOOP strap is actually based on a lot of research that's been conducted over the last 10, 15 years. We've talked about some of this. There's been a whole series of studies, and I am not going to give you the names of the authors because I've already embarrassed myself horrifically by mispronouncing them, so you're just going to have to trust me on this. But there's been a whole series of authors that looked at comparing... Athletes who were doing training based on a well-periodized, planned-out training plan compared them to athletes who were basing their training purely on their heart rate variability. So a doctor would analyze their data in the morning and say, you're not recovered, so you're just going to do an easy workout today. Or you are recovered, go out, do some interval work. And amazingly, all these studies, the athletes who did their training based on heart rate variability saw greater adaptations than the athletes who were on that well-mapped-out plan.
0: And yeah, that's just what WHOOP does.
1: It takes
0: your heart rate variability score, your resting heart rate score, your sleep quality score, or I should say all of those factors, and rolls it into a score that will tell you, today, you're ready to go. Go out, tear yourself apart. Or, nah, don't do it. Sit on the couch, rest up, have a go tomorrow.
1: WHOOP is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery. WHOOP provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. WHOOP tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You could also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores to let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. WHOOP helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and track sleep performance with insights into sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, WHOOP just released a new WHOOP Strap 3.0, which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The WHOOP Strap 3.0 now has 5-day battery life, an improved strap, and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K, so two T's, no space. Just go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code FASTALK at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train.
0: Last time I was here, I walked up the stairs and Trevor's robot greeted me. And I said, hey, Trevor, your robot came out the door. And oh, I, didn't, it, I didn't think anything of it. <laughs>
1: and Trevor comes running out the door and your your it, robot tried to commit suicide. Yes, it tried Uh-oh. to escape. I, I have one of those little Roomba, Roomba robot vacuum things. Chris opened the door and it like bolted out, <laughs> the, out to the deck. And when I went out to get it, it was halfway off the deck. <laughs> foreign contaminants so if you hear robots chirping if
0: there's uh <laughs> weird noises it's because we're not in our typical studio we're in a for now makeshift studio we're gonna we're gonna spruce this place up we're gonna make it we're gonna
1: dial it in here we are so we any weird we noises on robots yes so fast talk friend of cyclists not of robots <laughs> <laughs> and joining us today
0: for perhaps the fourth time not really sure, but
1: you might be our most frequent guest at this point. No, you're not. No? Brent? We, we have to fix this because I actually got a tweet. somebody saying, well, we should call this the Fast Talk and, and Colby Show. <laughs> and so I actually, I keep a record of everybody and I look ah. back and you were number three. Oh. Whoa. So, so we got to fix that. Me,
2: I'm going to have to
1: assassinate them. Or... Uh, I think Walter.
0: Book Walter has you beat. I can't yeah. remember the other one. You're talking about how many times their voice has appeared. Been so how many episodes they've Book Walter has never been the main guest, whereas you have... That's lots a of, good
2: point. Lots of Brent snippets.
1: Yes, yes, correct.
2: He's good for snippets.
1: He is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. not much else. <laughs> oh, sorry, <Brent. laughs> Which reminds me, we're getting him on the show this fall. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> Finally. Finally. Maybe not now. <laughs> well, today we want to talk about,
0: not robots, but the energy game. How to take advantage of all of those things to save up all that energy. So you can release it at the optimum time. And we have Colby here because he's been doing this forever. He thinks about these things. As we know from our previous discussions, he thinks about these things. He knows about these things. Curious I would,
2: man. I would say I have understanding of these things based on personal experience because I spent a whole air quotes racing career and air quotes. Why, why quote, why air quotes? Well, <laughs> okay. Okay. To segue for a brief moment, I mean, you call yourself a professional in a sport. Some people might say, and I think this definition is reasonable, that in order to call yourself a professional, you have to be making, let's say, minimum wage as an actual salary practicing in that sport. So of all the years that I was on professional teams in the U.S., very few of them would that would I make that definition or that cut. That rules I did out, make it from time to time. That rules
1: out the women. Basically, women and sixty percent of male cyclists Oh in the
2: US, yeah, Yeah. for sure. I mean it's and what saddens me most is that I battled that when I was a pro, but the game hasn't changed that much since I stopped racing. That's the worst part. It really hasn't the depth and breadth of the 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 payment scheme or structure in professional cycling as a as a sport has not really changed dramatically, and that's kind of a bummer to see. So anyways. Yeah. But I say that with all seriousness, like I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm squarely in the middle of no man's land in the sport of cycling in the sense that the sweet spot actually. Yeah. Kind of the sweet spot. Um, I mean, there are people who are like, wow, you're so unbelievably fast. You did this and that and that. And then there are other people who could literally rip me off their wheel in 30 seconds and I've got it on both sides. Now, most people in the sport can say that it's just a question of what your peer group is on and what the ride context is. But I think it's always important to keep that perspective. Maybe we shouldn't have Colby on. He doesn't, he doesn't sound like he's got a lot of confidence in himself. <laughs> well, the point I was actually trying to make is that I spent a whole air quotes career basically making the most out of what yeah, is really a glorified exactly. hummingbird engine. I mean, I'm not a high powered rider. I've never had a big VO2, never had a lot of watts to throw around. So that's why you had to use your brain more. My brain, my, ooh, how am I going to survive in this draft? Um, how am I going to make it down around? The course in this corner, oh, it's, I'm going to have to corner two miles an hour faster than most other people. It's just the way mm-hmm. it is. And then
1: you develop skills by necessity as the mother of invention. You know. On that note, I have seen a lot of cyclists that have enormous engines that can't win a race because they just well, get taken advantage of. They so don't use a great, their brain.
2: That's a great point. I call that the Phil Gaiman complex or Phil Gaiman example. Does Phil, he say Gaiman or Gaiman? I don't really know. I'm going with Gaiman. Okay.
1: We, we um, got to keep count of how many people we offend on this particular episode. So, so far we got Bookwalter, Gaiman. I, I <laughs> who can we him. go for? I coached okay. Phil for
2: a while, so I'm, I'm just going to go with it. All right. But Phil's a great example because he is obviously an enormously talented cyclist in a pretty narrow bandwidth, i.e. VO2, and he's skinny and he's got a good, he's got the right fiber type to make power on steep hills, right? And Phil grew up racing in Florida, where his skills weren't maybe as useful as they could have been initially. But he was still probably, on any given day, at least 5% or 10% stronger than the next strongest guy in any group ride race he did. The advantage to that is that Phil could win pretty much whenever he wanted. He could do ridiculous stuff. The mm-hmm. disadvantage is get away that... with it, so to speak. The disadvantage is he never learned to hide his cards. He never had right. to. Yeah. Uh, even if the entire field of 80 people ganged up on him and a breakaway got up the road five minutes, Phil would eventually just wait till everyone got bored, and then he would just swing out into the wind, pass the entire field in one giant sprint, and then bridge the five minute gap solo, and then probably drop everyone and win. That happened multiple times. He was that good. But then when he got to Europe, and suddenly the deck was filled with cards that were very close to his ability level, he couldn't corner as fast, he didn't understand how to save those cards. That plays exactly into what we're talking about, which is how do you learn how to save energy for the right moment and use your bullets at the right time? Because Mm -hmm. when Phil gets in European peloton, he's no longer a big fish in a little pond, he's a He's a big fish in a sea full of sharks and still very talented, but development timeline was sort of staggered and a little bit discordant because he couldn't, he didn't carry the skills, the basic skills, the basic racing skills with him to Europe that could have helped him prosper on a bigger level. So we get to have his awesome worst retirement ever show,
1: which is a whole different outcome and pretty cool. (laughs) That's a conversation I've had with a lot of athletes when they're at that phase where they can just win a race by outpowering everybody. What I always say is you will eventually hit a level. Where you can't do that. Where you are going to put in your biggest attack, look back, and everybody's sitting on your wheel. There's only like two people in the world that can do
0: that. Peter Sagan at his best and Matthew Vanderpoel at his best. And the rest of the world can't
2: always Mm -hmm. get away with that stuff. Right. You got to be clever and strong. That's what is amazing about bike racing. That's why it's not an ergometer test or a marathon. It actually involves tactics. And that's why the outcome of almost any race is never known even a race as long and hard as the tour until it actually happens. Mm -hmm, That's what makes cycling a beautiful sport. People miss this point all the time. They get frustrated. Oh, the best rider didn't win. Um, No, actually the best rider won every time. Yeah. Yes. There are those crimes that happen occasionally. Like when Shelly Olds made the break in the Olympic road race and then flatted out of it. Right. That was a crime, but it wasn't a crime against Shelly and it wasn't a crime against tactics. It was a crime of this is 2012 and we still have pneumatic failures in bike races, (laughs) which is kind of ridiculous. So, things happen like that. But aside from that, the best rider always wins yep. the race. Yeah. Right. Because
1: they were the sm- if you're dumb enough to tone to the line, they're smart enough to spring around you. Yeah. So, let's talk here about energy. And why don't we start by giving – I won't do one of my nerd bombs and give no, you the scientific definition please, of energy. Please. But there really isn't much. It's know, just there. joules. <laughs> it's not that complicated. Sorry. I'm not going to excite you with that one. But let's talk about what energy is and, and even is there a way to essentially measure energy that you can use in a race? Anybody want to jump on this one? I gave mine. It's joules. <laughs> really simple. Yeah, I mean, kill
2: is is the, the basic um, measurement. It's the amount of work done over a ride or a race, right? The interesting part about that is it doesn't really consider the rate at which you do that work. So you could burn 1,000 KJs in one hour. That's a really hard hour. Or you can burn a 1,000 kilojoules over four hours where you're just puttering along doing nothing.
1: No, here's my nerve bomb because wa- uh, power is defined as work time. over time. Mm-hmm. Right. So it is. That's where you put in the time component. Yep.
2: So then we're getting into a conversation about TSS, which is a way to score intensity over time, right? Right. So that's one way to look at it. And then you can break that down into different parts, such as FRC or functional reserve capacity or W' prime is another way to look at a similar metric.
1: Yeah, they're basically the same. So W yeah. prime is what the scientific literature has been using for right. decades. FRC is now what you're seeing in some of the, the software and other right. packages FRC is common term, right? So functional reserve capacity. So that's basically the
2: amount of work you can do over threshold in theory. This is hotly debated amongst the science geeks and the training geeks out there right now. It's sort of right now it's quantified in the number of KJ's. At least FRC is. What I find interesting about this to nerd out for a minute is that we quantify threshold as an absolute number, right? Which that's a whole other conversation as to whether that's a good strategy or not. But we don't quantify FRC as an absolute number. We don't say your FRC is 525 watts. Instead, we say, well, this is how many kilojoules of work you could do in between your threshold and infinity, your sprint power. So there are different ways to burn up those cages. In theory, you could be just 20 watts over your threshold and you might have a longer duration But it would still be the same number of kilojoules as if, on the other hand, you were 100 watts over your threshold, you might only have a couple minutes.
1: So we were just talking about this before. I just did a time trial at 9,000 feet after spending a month at sea level. I can tell you that threshold is definitely not absolute. <laughs> and my FRC was zero. <laughs> <laughs> if you go to a high enough altitude, does
2: your FRC just hit zero even out of the box? <laughs> Pretty much. Probably. Yeah,
1: probably. There was a point in the road race where somebody attacked and went, oh, I should cover that. And I went, oh, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> and just watch them right away.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a governor. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I really struggle with FTP because it is relative on any given day. And on a day where a rider's super smashed after seven days of hard work, FTP becomes this hypothetical ghost number. Well, it's still 310 right. watts. Could you do 310 watts for an hour right now? Well, no, I'm tired. Well, then what does it mean?
1: Sorry. No, I mean, these are all good points. and uh, That was kind of what I wanted to get at is we have these metrics that can be useful, mm. but I don't think there is yet a number that we can put on energy saying, here's how much energy mm. you have in the race. Here's what you can use. We had an episode probably a few months ago now where we talked with Mondo at Xert, and they have this really interesting kind of live equivalent to FRC, but it adjusts as you're going hard. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I which I thought episode. was
1: really appealing because that's more accurate. Mm-hmm. It's going to go up and down as you do these efforts. He it's that likes- jar analogy.
2: And there are other companies working on a similar metric. I was talking to Pat Warner and Ben Sharp at Stages, and they've got their Dash Head unit, and they were talking about doing a similar metric where you're you're quantifying a rider's FRC, or I don't know if they're going to use that terminology or not exactly, but that concept. And then you could see on the screen. In theory, you've got one bullet left or 10% left of your right. gas tank of magic bullets or whatever you want to... You Matches, have, you have, you can use. your matchbook yeah. is low. Yeah, your matchbook is low, so proceed with caution. For me, this gets also back to the heart of our conversation, which is what are we using these metrics for? And in my mind, I think people really, coaches and riders alike, tend to put the cart before the horse in a way they're looking at a proxy. At times, I believe people perceive that the proxy is the real thing. Watts are meaningless. They're just a metric we use to help us understand what's happening. What are we trying to understand? You're trying to understand how much juice you have in the tank. At that moment in that road race, Trevor, when you went to follow that attack and you realized, I can't do this, you didn't look at your power meter and do a math equation and go, well, could I follow this attack? I've been doing 285 watts up the last climb for 14 minutes. And then we searched a 310. You just knew immediately because you've been racing for how many years? 25 years, 30 years? My age? I've uh,
1: 10 started so oh, to oh, ride good a bike, job. yeah. Sorry I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm momentarily confused with me.
2: I've been racing for over 30 years.
1: Yeah, no, 25-ish, something yeah. like that. So, yeah, I have never done the count.
2: Right. Yeah, you got to get after that. He's been racing you can since throw he was it around zero. a like me. He's been racing. Since oh, no. So,
1: did I tell you this story? I was in a race what a year ago where some kid kind of gave me attitude and my normal line is kid, don't give me attitude. I haven't raced since you've been a training wheel. So I was yeah. about to say it and I'm like, wait a minute. How old are you? <laughs> And he tells me and I go, oh God, I've been racing since before you were alive.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Okay. So you didn't look at your head unit at that moment, you know, or flick to some screen and see what your max power was or power in time, time and zones or anything. You knew intuitively and instantly that if you follow that attack, you might explode into a million pieces and have to stop racing or get shelled hopelessly or whatever. So my point is that is the essence of bike racing is knowing at your soul in the core of your being how many watts you have left and finding the limit of that depth. That is the point of competition. Heart rate, kilojoules, FRC, the time on the road, how many bottles you drank, how much food you had. All those are different things you keep track of to help you figure that out, to help you hone and refine that intuition. That is the art of bike racing. That's what it's about. And if you don't understand this, go read The Rider by Tim Crabe, and that'll give you a little window, perhaps. I
1: agree completely. But my quick addendum, I did look at my power later. And mm-hmm. then I cried and cried <laughs> well, and that's cried. What, that's what power is. That's what files are for is to do a postmortem afterwards
2: and help you learn and go, okay, I can see that on the first climb. I went way too ballistic. I didn't feel like I was. So my intuition was a little mistaken. I had my balls were too big or whatever. Yeah. Overuse, excuse me, ladies. And I got too excited and I, I went way deep trying to keep up with yeah. whoever. And then I put myself in the hole or conversely. Okay, I can see that I was a little too conservative in the first half of that time trial, and I could have ridden a little harder, and I probably left a few seconds on the course.
1: So we're going to get more into the strategy later in this episode, but just going with this example, what I did. I arrived at the race thinking, okay, I want to get in the breakaway. I want to be in the move. I want to attack. I want to be aggressive, and just hadn't factored in. I just spent a month at sea level. I can't attack at all at 8,000 feet. So when the attacks happened and I saw that I couldn't do anything, I immediately changed my strategy and went, I I got no high intensity. I got no big power. So I started racing by when they would ease up, move to the front. front, I would be like second wheel. Yeah. And when they would attack, I wouldn't even try to respond. I would just would sag, sag, start mm-hmm. ramping up the speed slowly so I could get back onto the back of the field. Mm-hmm. And then when they used up, move back up the second wheel. And I, that's how I had to get up the climb. And how did you, were you able to survive in the pack
2: until the final grade? I think the race finished. I did survived. Did finish at the high school outside of Nederland? No, Shell, it's all oh, the way oh, up to the ski road. resort. Oh, so it Nine, finished with a – for those of you who aren't familiar, it's like what, a 5K climb that starts at about 9,200 or something, right?
1: Uh, so the high school is at 84.
2: Right, no, I mean the Shelf Road climb probably starts at
1: probably about nine thousand. The highest point of the race was ninety-three. Let's check in all oh. this afterwards.
2: Okay, so a little lower, yeah. Yeah,
1: so it's probably five k climb or it's high. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's high and it hurts. That's a rough finish. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. So it's a hilltop finish at a really high yeah.
1: altitude. I mean, I was out a time limit. Unfortunately, you can do this. You can only do the sagging so much when there's 20 people in the race. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And yeah. I eventually got caught out by it and then just went, okay, I'm going to go into time trial mode. And yeah. I basically just held pace with them almost all the way to the top of the climb. Yeah. And then I got in with a few guys peak to peak and, and finished with them. Okay. That's all I could do. That's all I had the energy for. And that's sometimes survival mode is the mission. Yep. So, I mean, we could talk about all the metrics, but I'm just going to throw out the way I like to describe it. I like to think of it as a jar of energy. Mm-hmm. We all have a, a jar. Each of us has a different size jar. Some people's jar is bigger. Some people's jar is smaller. That's one factor, but the other factor is the size of the mouth. The rate at which it can. Right. Energy. It's how much mm-hmm. can you dump the energy out. So I'm somebody, like I said, I, I was made from the ground up to be a domestique. I've got a huge jar. With Mm -hmm. a very narrow mouth. So (laughs) I have a lot of energy to spend, but I can't spend it very fast. Mm -hmm. Where a sprinter might have a much smaller jar, but a A, huge amount. A giant lid that he can unscrew and just dump it all over the floor immediately. All out. Right. And I think it's really important to know what type of jar you have, Mm because that's going to play into your strategy a lot. So Mm -hmm. with me, I know if it comes down to a sprint, if there's four of us in the sprint, I'm fourth. Mm. It's just the way it's going to work. But if I can turn it into a race of let's all spend a whole lot of energy, I'm going to outlast mm-hmm. a whole lot of people. For sure. What yeah. size jar are you, Colby?
2: I'm always a small everything. Small
0: jar with a small mouth? Um, I'd say you're a medium jar with a medium mouth. <laughs> getting weird, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean it to. Or
2: I appreciate maybe, that. Uh, maybe I do. I appreciate that. Well... I'll say this. It's all relative, of course. It's all relative, but also depends – cycling – this is what – another beautiful thing about cycling is there's so many little niches of the sport. And so it really depends on what kind of race we're sure. talking about. On the track, you're one thing on the – Yes, you know, like- right. That's what I'm saying. And, of course, that's because the demands of the event are different on the track. You know, what's the the most easy to compare apples to apples metric we use to compare riders all the time is watts per kilo. And that, of course, applies very well to a race like the one Trevor was talking about with a whole bunch of climbing and then finishes with a whole bunch of climbing and then a, a, right. a climbing cherry on top. But watts per kilo, we have to remember to quote Coggan all mathematical models are invalid. The question is, what is their domain of validity? Meaning, how is watts per kilo actually useful in the real world? Well, you got to remember what it is. I mean, watts per kilo is just numbers on a paper, and those numbers represent how much power the rider's putting out relative to their weight, which means that in the real world, that would be two riders riding against each other. And we're comparing the watts per kilo, but they're riding in a vacuum because it has zero account for aerodynamics. And in nearly all bike racing, aerodynamics play a massive role in the outcome. Massive. There are lots of other factors that confound things like watts per kilo and predicting race results, unless you're talking about a really steep hill climb. If you're talking about Pike's Peak Hill Climb, watts per kilo is a great way to predict the outcome of a race. Or Zwift. Yeah, or Zwift, (laughs) assuming (laughs) the rider's honest about their the, the kilo part. So to that end... You look at the demands of the event, like uh, in a track race, in a points race, which was one of my specialties, the race is about 35 to 45 minutes long and you average about anywhere between 50 and 55 K an hour. So aerodynamics play a heavy, heavy role in the outcome of that race. And I happen to be really aero. I'm not that big of a motor, but the other thing I can do is go kind of go again and again and again and again. And I've got a big FRC, but the size of the bursts that I'm doing are big, but they're aero. And so I'm recovering better than a rider. So it adds up. Mm -hmm. So over time, I slowly start to gain an advantage over my peer group. And that's how I was successful. But you put an engine like that, in particular one with my fiber type, which isn't really that good at dealing with steep stuff or high torque situations. And you put me in a domestic road race with steep climbs and I was nothing special at all. If I was really, really trained and really, really fresh and everything went great, I could be and have an impact on some of the domestic professional races, you know, like Sea Otter or stuff like that. Redlands, I was kind of floating around here and there, but I never had great results at a lot of those classic stadiums is something like Bose I just been getting my teeth kicked in all week. I mean, I was there, I was part of the pack, but I wasn't doing anything special. So to that end, that goes back to knowing yourself and knowing what kind of engine you have and also the nuance of that is knowing what kind of engine how your engine specifically will play out on what type of course. And if you want to waste a lot of energy, try really, really, really hard to win races that you suck at. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I've done that a lot in my, in my racing adventures. By choice and or by... Just by stubbornness yeah, and right. raw no, I... passion for the sport. Absolutely. Then after a while, I was like, hmm, you know, I'm really not that good at this. Maybe I should do something else. And then one day I was like, I think I'll try track racing. And then it was like, oh, hey, I clicked better at this. That's part of the adventure too, is figuring out where you use your bullets. And if I can interject with one more point to that effect... I have, I've had this conversation with a couple of my riders recently. I do believe that we always need to look at the long game of the sport at least 12 months in advance. Whenever you're thinking about your season and your goals, whether you're a coach or an athlete. Athletes need to understand that when you there are only so many efforts, so many times you can really reach down into your soul and dig really deep. Yeah. And if you're smart, you use those efforts on days where the race suits you and things are going well. You haven't already flatted four times Mm. and you have a shot to do the best you're going to do. That's the day to use those rides. Now, if you're competing at the world level, then you use that on world championship day, but most people aren't. Maybe it's their district time trial or maybe it's their district criterium championships. That's the day where they dig and that's their goal race. But far too often I see athletes use that, that level of effort on a training ride, in a group ride, or... In a race where they have really no chance of doing well anyway, maybe they're not a climber, but they're just absolutely destroying themselves in a local hill climb. Like, Be smart about this. Dial this back. Use this as training and use your energy on the day where it's really going to benefit you and maximize things. Because maybe we've got half a dozen, maybe a dozen really deep days in a hard season. Tops. Mm -hmm. And those days, if you use them right, you're throttled afterwards.
1: I think of it as you have this line. And as long as you stay below that line, you're going to recover. You're going to be fine. Yeah. Everybody can cross that line. But when you cross it, there's a price to pay. Yeah. And it might be a week, two weeks before you, you recover. And so, as you said, mm-hmm. you got to know that line. And if you're about to cross it, you have to look at it. You have to look at the race. You have to look at the mm-hmm. event and go, is, text, it is, it? is it worth it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Is Kansas your goal for the season and, and you're doing well? That's probably a good place to cross that line. Like if you've already (laughs) flatted nine times, does it make sense to cross that line to bridge up to the 300th rider and smash them before you cross the line? Probably not like save it for another day.
0: Well, why don't we move into some specifics and give some examples of wasting energy? How do people do this? Why do people
1: do this? Mm. So I'm going to throw out the first one because this is the biggest to me is watching riders respond to every single move. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is when I last few years when I was coaching up in Toronto, we had a couple riders on our team who I would talk to after the race because I would see this. There was just nonstop attacks. Breakaways would only last 20, 30 seconds. And then mm-hmm. the next one would go. And we had riders on the team who would respond to every single one. Mm-hmm. And then when the real move went 40 minutes into the race, they it were nowhere to be seen. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think to generalize, you see mm-hmm. this in lower categories more than you do in, in Cat 1 races. But it, that's, again, a generalization.
2: That's a broad stroke. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah.
1: You have to be willing to let things go up the road. And more importantly, you, you have to experiment in races and learning to identify that move's going nowhere, that move's going nowhere. Okay, That one's dangerous. I'm going with that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All the great breakaway riders that I've ridden with and I, that I know, they have an incredible sense for that. They can let 20 moves go up the road without you know, even batting an eyelash. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, one move goes, they're out of the field like a bullet, and you never see it again. Yeah. yeah. It takes some patience. It
0: takes some knowing yeah. your competitors. It takes some confidence, too, in knowing that
1: mm.
0: you're making the right choices. If you're not, you're out of the game.
2: Yeah. I would say that I've been on all sides of that equation at different points meaning there are days where I've been the guy chasing every move and then miss the actual break. Yep. There are days where I've been sitting and watching and waiting and waiting and waiting and knowing, and then you just get hit by a bolt of lightning and you know, Oh, that's the move. Boom. Mm -hmm. And you go with it and you're gone. And other people are looking at you like you're from Mars because you haven't done anything for an hour. And then I've been the guy who has intentionally covered every single move. And in certain very narrow circumstances, um, just to offer a counterpoint, I think that can be applicable Points racing is a good example of that, Fair especially enough. at the world cup level where you've got 24 riders on the track and 20 of them are legit bike riders. And you really, it's hard to look around and know sure. who's going to comprise the final break here. And it, and points races can go, for those of you who may not know any which way you can, you can put 24 riders on the track and ride them once and no riders will lap. It'll be a sprinter's race. Although sprinter race is really a misnomer because when you have 12 sprints, that's not something a sprinter can... A true sprinter can yeah. usually repeat. On the other hand, you can have that same 24 riders on the track and put them there and you'll get... The winner will lap four times. So it's an absolute yard sale. There are people everywhere. And so there are lots of chances. That means the second place, third place, and fourth place riders may have taken three laps, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that involves covering a lot of moves. The interesting part about it is later in my career, I started to work really honestly. And this is a bit of an off-the-wall idea, but just go with me on it. I started to work on my... Chris is laughing at me as though <laughs> this is nothing new <laughs> i I really believe that when riders are really in tune with what's happening and they have rested a peaceful confident mind they can go into a race and have a large degree of premonition you yes. have all humans have voyances clairvoyance autovoyance etc it's just a question of tapping into it and there are days where I would go to the race and As a coach, I was able to do this on certain days. And as a rider, I would look at the points race field when they were all standing, waiting for bike check. And I would look and just see and listen to what my brain came up with and my intuition came up with. And I would say, these four riders are going to be in the top three. And there were three or four times where I was 100% right. I did it once when Brad Huff raced a World Cup. I was like, follow this guy, that guy, and that guy. Now, as it turned out that day, Brad didn't have the legs to follow any of those guys, but those guys were the top three. I just knew. And it wasn't because I'd watched their splits or knew their training or talked to their coaches or anything. I just –
1: you just see it. You just know it. Yeah. A lot of the people listening here, you're racing the same people
3: every race. Right.
1: You can start to get a sense of who's the guys that are always in the breakaway and who are the guys that are never in the breakaway. Yeah and take advantage of that for sure
2: for sure and that's local familiarity is a powerful weapon in that sense i'm talking about maybe another level from that where i'm racing with 20 guys i don't know at all but then it's a little harder
1: them. and you just have yeah to, yep.
2: it's just raw intuition and there are moments also i'll say in a peloton a road peloton particularly in a road race where the fields kind of whipped into that angry bees nest sort of action of the race or, or chapter of the race where people are tacking and, and you know there's going to be a breakaway and it's happening and it's just blunt force trauma people are just hitting and hitting and hitting and going right and you're sort of watching going what is that it is that the move should i follow this one should i follow that one and they're not always but frequently if you're really in touch with what's happening the psychology of the peloton you feel the energy of the peloton approaching a kind of a crescendo Mm -hmm. and when that point hits the very next move is the one so it's not even necessarily about mechanically or intellectually thinking who is in the break. These riders are dangerous. It's more about the timing. It's about the energy of the peloton. You can just tell that everybody's just frenetic and they're going and going and the elastic's going to break. And it's just the right move. You cover one or two moves and boom, that's it. You're gone. And whoosh.
1: I love that you bring that up because so many riders really focus on the, this is what they, what they read or what they're told is, you have to have the right mix in the breakaway, yeah. which is always nice. And there are certain teams that you do need to see in the breakaway, mm-hmm. but you're never going to have that perfect mix. Right. And I see guys miss breakaways because it's always what well, wasn't quite was the right, this mix. Team. right Yeah. I yeah. always tell people, spend more time looking behind you than in front of you mm-hmm. for exactly what you're saying. There are times you can attack the field at 500 watts and you won't get a second on them. Yep. There are times you can just roll away at 200 watts and you'll get 30 Instant seconds. Gap. Yep. You have to read what's going on in the field because that gives you a better sense of when the winning move is going to happen and when it yeah. isn't. I agree Agreed. with you
2: 100%. And just like any flow state, right? You t- hear athletes talk about their perfect race or their perfect marathon or whatever they did. And flow state descriptions tend to be very common. You have access to intellectual thought, but you're also following to a large degree your instinct your f- and, and you feel connected to your body. And that's ultimately the state that you want to tap into that state consciously whenever possible you want to be able to drop into it by choice. but particular whenever you're trying to solve a tactical equation, there's so many variables whether course undulations, uh, heat temperature and humidity, team interactions, team tactics, different objectives of different teams, all those you're factoring in together and it's a giant pile of spaghetti noodles you're trying to make sense of it. If you're in that flow state, suddenly things can become clear. But if you're not, if you're conflicted, if you're thinking about how you didn't eat the right breakfast, if your stomach's upset, if you forgot one of your water bottles or, you know, you got in a fight with your girlfriend on the way to the race or whatever, then that can disrupt that flow state. Or if you forget shoes, that tends to do it.
1: <laughs> That's really going to mess you up. Usually, I've seen that a few times. It's, big, it's a big problem. How many times have you done that? Never done it myself. Never? Wow. Never done it myself. Not yet. I, I did take a guy all the way from Canada down to Arkansas to do tri-peaks. <laughs> oh, Come on. First day, our hotel was like a good hour and a half away from where the stage started. Yeah. yeah. We got there, and the guys, just like, uh, oh no, <laughs> wow,
0: yeah, that's not, not a good feeling. No, <laughs> no,
1: no. We told him to go knock on the United van and no. tell him he's beg. an idiot and begged, beg. And they were nice enough to lend him some shoes. That's good.
0: Being out of position, whether that's sitting on the front uh, sitting on the outsides, just mm-hmm. not knowing where you should be at any given moment in a race, that's a big one.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, in general, sitting on the the edge of the peloton, it's a, it's pros and cons. If you're sitting on the edge, if you think of the head of the peloton like a shape, kind of like an arrow, and you're along the edges of the arrow, then you're getting more wind, but you have easier access to cover attacks or move up as needed. When you're in the middle, you're getting a much better draft, but you're at the whim of who's in front of you. You can't respond to an attack that happens three riders to the right of you if you're six riders back. you can All you can do is watch it, and then you hear people yell sometimes, hey, go, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing sounds more futile than telling other people how to race their bike. <laughs> so there's pros and cons to that. When you're on the outside of the Peloton, you're catching more wind. One way to minimize that is always be conscious of usually there's some degree of side wind happening. So if you're going to be on the side of the Peloton, be on the downwind side. That's not rocket science. Unfortunately, that tends to be in the gutter most of the time. So then you're subject to more road furniture, more cracks between in the gap between the asphalt and the concrete, curbs, dogs, pedestrians, road debris, everything, you know, yeah. flat tires, people sliding off of the grass, all that stuff. So again, it's always pros and cons. I kind of think of being in a Peloton as a little bit of a binary equation. Like every time you are afforded the opportunity to either move up or stay where you are, it's kind of like a one or a zero. And the more zeros you choose, the more conservative you're being, the more energy you're harnessing and saving for later, but the more chances you're giving up in the short term, you might be fine with that. If your whole objective is to wait till the final 5k climb and then torch everybody. And no matter what happens the first part of the day then you're going to make all zero choices the first part of the race. You're going to hide. You're always going to be on the downwind side. You're always going to try to be in the middle of the pack, eating and drinking. When they, when there's a really big acceleration in front of you, you're going to sag a little bit, let a couple of riders get around you, and then when it opens up later, you might inch your way up a little bit again. But on the other hand, if you're actively trying to make the breakaway in the first 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of the race, you're making all one choices. You have to be on the outside of the peloton to be reactive. Yeah. You have to see what's happening. You have to see who's in the breakaway so you can decide if you want to jump across as a second move and bridge, etc. And you have to also, whenever you start to get swallowed, you have to actively box your way out of that corner so that you can be part of the race again. Because if you're passive, you're not going to be able to make the break. So
1: this goes back to your earlier point about how important it is to learn to read the field and see what's yeah. going on. Because there are times in the race where nothing's going on. So sit Absolutely. in the middle of the field. You got it. There are times where if you're five wheels out of position – your race is over, over, and you need to know those moments. I mean, I still remember first pro race I ever did. the The thing that struck me the most was seeing all these guys who were high level pros mm. at the back of the field, sometimes even off the back, just yeah. chatting away. And you were like, not paying attention. And I'm like, I thought they were pros. So don't yeah. they know better? <laughs> and then over you know, the year, I realized
2: at the right moment, they're at the front.
0: They have to take right. advantage of those relaxed moments.
1: They knew when nothing was going on, and well, they just went to the back and saved energy. The essence of this principle is that. As a professional
2: rider, you become very astute and very accomplished at saving as much energy as possible at the right moment, which is, of course, what we're talking about. And that sometimes means literally being last wheel in the Peloton Mm -hmm. and conserving. Because when you're riding in a big Peloton, 80, 100, Tour de France Peloton, you know, 180, 200 riders, that's a massive amount of wind that you don't have to deal with in the back. But 180 riders accelerates, and that's a long (laughs) pace
1: line. Yes, it is. (laughs) I... When I was learning how to read the field, one of the first things I learned to do is there were certain riders, exactly like Chris was saying. If they were at the back, you knew nothing was going on. Yeah. And when you saw them at the front, get you scared. Do.
2: Yeah. Something's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. Yeah. One of my first Boulder-Rubais road races, which is a famous local race here in Colorado, it's just like it sounds. It's half, half dirt, half paved or approximately, depending on which year and which race you did. I showed up thinking I knew what I was doing and all the Coors Light guys were there. And that was a huge deal. This is back when we had 100 rider pelotons in local 1-2 races, which unfortunately isn't really a thing too often anymore. And I went into that first dirt section probably 85th wheel thinking Ooh. I was going to do something <laughs> cool, save energy. That was a great example of a painful lesson. Mm. Saving energy at the wrong moment because I got my teeth kicked in. I spent the next three hours hanging on for dear life, chasing Going through the shrapnel, guys get dropped, crashing, flatting, water bottles, avoiding dirt, dust, can't see. (laughs) Yeah, it was that was one of my early he had that a story to lessons. tell after
1: that one, but yeah. you didn't do very well. Okay, so we have to move on to this next one because Colby added this to our list, and I really want to hear what this is. Mm-hmm. Riding in the washing machine as a way of wasting energy.
2: Yeah, I've been guilty of this many times. If you think about the front of the peloton, once the breakaway is established or once the rhythm of the race is established, there tends to be about four or five riders at the front pulling or you know, plus or minus. And then just behind that, there's sort of a group of about, we'll say maybe 30% of the total peloton size that's sort of trying to be sixth wheel and this is the washing machine, so you, you kind of battle your way up to 6th wheel or 8th or wheel, so you can see what's going on, you can feel like you're at the front, and then another rider comes past you, another rider comes past you, and then you end up getting spit back to about 25th wheel, and then you start okay. the process over again. And if you do that for 30, 40, 100k, it's a lot of wasted energy. And I, remember, I recall one day, I think it might have been at a stage in Bose where I just got sick of doing that for like 100K and I dropped back. And then there was Ian McGregor at the back of the field. And he was like, dude, I've been watching you do that for like an hour and a half. What the hell are you doing? And he was just sitting there like three lengths <laughs> off the back of 130 <laughs> rider field, just floating, telling stories and like eating gummy bears. And he went on to win a stage and I didn't. That had nothing to do with the fact that I'd waste all the energy. Ian was just a way, way better bike racer than I was. But it was a good lesson for me because I just was so engaged in trying to be at the front. I was, I was a little... And, and to be fair, in my mind, I was... Being, being conscious attentive. of rolling yeah. terrain, I was yeah. being attentive, and I was worried about a little bit about crosswinds and things sure. exploding.
0: It's but, tricky sometimes to know when, yeah. when to be attentive and yep. when to relax. Like yep. Trevor yep. was saying, you know, you can key off of other guys sometimes, but you're always taking a risk
1: too. Yeah, some but degree. It's it's pros and cons, and yeah. I agree with you 100. percent To be six wheel, you have to fight. It takes a lot of energy. There are people who are going to constantly want to take that wheel from you, and you have to keep fighting them. Yeah, 25th wheel. It's pretty easy to sit there. It doesn't take as much energy and you're still in the race.
2: You're in the race. You're you're close enough to where if something really happened, you could be reactive
1: and, and, get, to, up to and that get up six to it. Get up to it.
2: Yeah, if someone yeah, five guys suddenly go rocketing off the front they're a threat or whatever. The flip side of that example is you year when I worked with the Garmin Sharp team, I did the Vuelta España as a staff member and uh, during one particular stage where the riders were a bit cracked, we the A C had broken in the bus about two days prior, so everyone was pretty pretty blown at that point driving around in September in Ugh. August and September in southern spain who air conditioning is is important there and anyway at one point Ryder was uh Ryder hedgedahl was way back in the peloton like last wheel and i don't know if a team specifically targeted him or but it was just one of those moments in a grand tour where the pace abruptly changed everyone was bunched up and riding along and just doing their thing and there was some breakaway up the road and then the peloton just exploded with 60k to go and Ryder was in the last group it was in yeah. the, the peloton was in pieces and complete yard sale, and the entire team had to drive back, drop back and chase and chase and chase and chase. And I think, I think, if I recall correctly, they still lost a couple minutes by the time they hit the line. It wasn't mm. a massive bleeding of time, but it was definitely given up time. And it just goes to show you that the larger the peloton and the deeper the pointy end of that is in terms of strength, the bigger risk you're taking with that kind of thing happening. Because if you're at the wrong end of that when it goes, man, it's just, yeah, it's just yep. a numbers game. And it's the same thing with crosswinds. A 12 rider echelon that is working well together can annihilate a single rider, annihilate in one kilometer, probably less. You have no chance when all those riders can be 60% as strong as you. If they're working well together and using the wind, you're done. You have no chance. It's the power of the group working together in the wind that does it. So that was a painful lesson for me as a young rider. And it's something you only need to learn a couple of times. It's basically like being bludgeoned with a baseball bat. All right, that sucked. I think I'll avoid that next
1: time. First time I ever did Tour of the Tuna. First stage, do this math in your head quickly. First stage, 107 kilometers, two hours, three minutes. And it so was it, not flat.
2: So, 50K an hour.
1: Yeah. It yeah. was really fast. Anybody who got a flat tire, yeah. they, they were just Don't toast. On. But the last probably 510K, we were strung out single file. And I remember coming over this hill, I was middle of the pack. So, there was over 200 people in the field. And you could see a kilometer up the road, and it was just a line of riders. And I remember afterwards we crossed the finish line, still just absolutely strung out. Mm-hmm. And I did kind of a loop around the block to cool down, and the field was still finishing. Still finishing, yeah. And so it, it turned out the time between the when the first rider crossed the finish line and the last rider crossed, and they all got the same time because there ended up being no gaps. Amazingly, <laughs> wow, was over two minutes. Wow. But yeah. had there been so one, like gap one gap in there,
2: somebody would have lost a minute or more, yeah. right? Yeah, or huh. a whole group would have, yeah. yeah. So with
1: yeah. that field, wants to drive it.
2: Sounds like it's, if the line was 500 meters later, the field would have shattered, and there would have been enough gaps. It just yeah. happened to be stretched out on the line. That's it was
1: that's really, really interesting. cool. Yeah. I've never seen that again. Yeah, but it was it was wild. Yeah. But that's what, as you said, that's what a field can do. And if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're not moving up. You can't do anything about it. Yeah. Sep Kuz with Team Yumbo Visma was a breakout star in 2018, winning the tour of Utah handily and then doing his first grand tour at the Volta. Sepp won Utah in dramatic fashion, expending a lot of energy. But since heading to Europe, he's had to learn a lot about how to play the energy game. You've you've come a long way in the last three years. You,
0: you raced in a criterium in Denver three years ago or three and a half years ago now, and you had to have a teammate or a teammate came up to you and said, Hey, Sep. you might want to ride in the drops. And here we are. You're racing at the Vuelta in your first year on the world tour. That's a, that's a rapid progression. I'm sure there are a few pieces of the puzzle that are missing from your repertoire. But I wonder if one of the things you've had to pick up the most is how to be efficient in a pack, when to conserve your energy and when to attack. Is that true? Have you been able to pick up that well?
3: Personally, that's one thing that I need to work on the most is just yeah, be be better at at, at saving energy um, during the race and wait for the the key moments. But you know, a, a lot of it just comes with uh, with experience. But yeah, that was the cool thing about the the Vuelta is that there's so many different different stages, so many different kind of scenarios that you find yourself in, and when you're around a lot of guys that have done not only that race but are have been professionals for ten or so years, you you kind of cue off of them, kind of see how they float through the pack, compare them to other guys that are, you know, maybe wasting energy, and and then you kind of, you know, have at least for me, I kind of have these teammates, non-teammates, just a group of, of riders that you notice and cue off of during the races and mimic what they're doing in the in the pack. And that's been pretty helpful for me.
0: So what are the things that they're doing that, that, uh, you see as a good example of, of what to do in terms of conserving energy?
3: Yeah, I think a lot of it's hard to explain when you're not in, like in the, <laughs> in the heat of the moment, I guess, but you know, guys like, like Valverde, he's really just calm. Never, never needs to put his nose into the wind until he does. And when he does it, <laughs> it's, uh, Usually, something that's that's going to make a difference. Whereas other guys attack, attack at the wrong moments. They're not going to use use the right momentum, things like that. And and you can kind of see see the guys that look like they don't care about the win until they win, and then the guys that look like they really care too much, and then then they're exposed at the end, I guess. So I think I think that's one example. Yeah, it's hard to, it's really hard to explain. I guess the guys that hang at the back, but don't really hang at the back. Uh, like Yates is pretty calm. You know, some guys you think, oh man, they've been at the back all day, but then, then you look around at the front and it's like, uh, <laughs> it
0: sounds like there's a sweet spot to be in um, both mentally and sort of physically in terms of where in the pack you want to be. You don't want to be too close to the front because then you're Getting getting wind in your face, you don't want to be too far back because then the chances of getting caught up in a crash or moving the uh, or missing the move are higher. It seems like there's it's all about having a sense for the race and knowing that sweet spot that you need to be in.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a lot of it is just having that that sense experience, but I think I think a lot of you know just personality wise, you can see certain guys get a bit um agitated maybe and then they're then they're wasting energy trying to be be at the front and then on the opposite end you see guys that are way way too calm and and then yeah they'll miss uh a split or get caught out in a crash things like that so i think it's just knowing yourself how to stay calm how not to get worked up and and use a lot of energy that you don't need to use but also not being super complacent and just kind of feathering around in the back
0: I got to ask, I've talked to you previously about this. There were times at the Tour of Utah uh, this year where you launched attacks when it seemed like it was really early or you didn't need to launch an attack because you were already in the leader's jersey and and history would tell us that the best method would just be to sit and play defense. But you, you were aggressive out there. Is that something that you've, learned from that you know you can't get away with that in Europe as much is that or is that just your style that you you can't hold back when the when you want to be aggressive you got to be aggressive
3: yeah a lot of it depends on the on the situation and I I think for me I was just 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 having fun honestly not really thinking about the the end result and yeah maybe you do something that's (laughs) not the smartest thing but yeah maybe I guess I was just lucky and had had good shape and was able to make some some moves that were a bit risky i guess make those kind of things work but yeah in europe there's definitely a lot less uh forgiveness for something like that and there's deeper deeper talent pool yeah for me i'm i'm still <laughs> so so inexperienced really so even things like pulling on the front I'll do in a way that's you know, maybe, maybe a bit taxing for the guys that I'm actually pulling for. So that, that's one thing I learned, you know, you you need to stay steady. Think about the people that are on your wheel. Think about where the wind's coming from all those things. So yeah, not, not only in when you're trying to win the race, but also when you're working for other people, you need to stay, stay composed.
0: I I imagine for someone like you, just like, for me, riding steady is, is not the easiest thing to do. It sounds easy, but it's not. And so I, I, I know what you're saying when it comes to not being able to ride as steady as the guy sitting on your wheel might want you to.
3: Yeah. You see like sky, they really do a good job of that. You know, everyone says, Oh, they're, they're steady. It's boring, but yeah, it works for a climb, but they also, when they're pulling they're (laughs) they're killing people on the back when it's, you know, uh, coming off of a downhill or, you know, certain sections of technical road, they, re- they really know how to make their effort count at least.
0: Whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Whoop tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You can also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores that let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. Whoop helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and tracks sleep performance with insight into your sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, Whoop just released the new Whoop Strap 3.0 which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. Whoop Strap 3.0 now has 5-day battery life and improved strap and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features including the new Strain Coach improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F A S T T A L K. Just go to whoop.com, that's W H O O P.com and use the code FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train.
1: <laughs> Here's a really easy one for you. When you are going into a road race that's exposed, know where the crosswind stretches you got are. It. Because the difference going through a crosswind stretch when you're sitting 10th wheel versus 60th wheel, if you want to talk about wasting energy. Yep. Because that 60th wheel, you are in the gutter. You are dying. Yep. You're probably going to have splits that you're later on going to have to bridge across. 100%, 100%. I would extend that to any obstacle or any pinch
0: point or anything that causes mm-hmm. the pace to rise, whether that's a transition from pavement to dirt yep. or a narrowing of the course or a change in direction on the course that changes the wind direction mm-hmm. where, from which it comes from, all of those times and yeah. others that we that I'm not listing, that's when you need to be way more attentive. attentive, most likely be way closer to the front because something's going to happen. Yep. The chances are likely that something is going to happen.
1: So we're going to talk a little later about times when it's worth wasting energy. And here's a bit of an odd one, but one that's really, I think is really important. If you are at a race that you really care about and you've never ridden the course a day or two beforehand, preferably two days beforehand, drive or ride the course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No I'm sure, recon is yep. very important.
2: It is. It's good to know that. Then you, you've you got it in your head and you know, okay, this is this weird chicane. I'm, I'm a little too far back. You have right. the instinct and you move up and then sure enough, something happens. And before you know it, you've. The field's cut in half and you're on the right end of that split, hopefully.
0: One of the other positional things we didn't talk about was hitting the climbs at the back of the group.
2: Well, like we were saying, Chris was saying earlier, anytime there's a significant obstacle change, change in terrain in the race, that's a good place to be at the front. because mm-hmm. you, you can anticipate that the pace of the race is going to it's going to change, it's going to go faster, and so when you put yourself at the back, Even if you're a really strong, confident climber, you're asking for it because you're going to have to wade your way through all the people that are getting dropped and shelled and dropping chains and dropping bottles. And You're sacrificing
0: something by being there. Almost
2: certainly. So it it rarely makes sense to start a significant climb in a race in the middle of the field or the back of the field. If you're doing that, it's because you've got no choice usually. It's not because you did it on purpose.
1: Right. But if you think about it, the people generally driving up that climb are the really good climbers. So right. when you're sitting at the back... Even
2: if you're one of the better climbers, you're still putting yourself at a disadvantage, right? Right.
1: Yeah. Well, you're if you're at the back, you're saying to almost kind of an arrogant, I'm faster than the fastest guys at the front because yeah. to stay with them, yeah. I'm going to actually have to go up this climb faster than them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make a lot of sense. So you could save a lot of energy by hitting, especially the, the shorter climbs at the front and slip back and a sagging little bit. back
2: and watching... Also, the advantage of sagging during a climb, if the if the pace doesn't go ballistic, you start at the front, is you get a chance to drift back through the group a little bit and assess your competition mm. while they're climbing. Yep. See who's got the good poker face. See who's letting it go. See who's starting to bob a little bit. See who's making the effort to be at the front and who right. isn't. So it gives you that that little chance before the fireworks start Maybe to kind of
0: shift their front derailleur while you pass them. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> no. no, don't do that. I don't recommend that. <laughs>
2: Especially now that shifters are on your handlebars, <laughs> at least in these modern bikes, most of the time they are. Yeah. In the old days, you could just reach down to the down tube, dump them in the big ring. Yeah. Wham. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh.
1: So we talked about positioning. The one that I really wanted to bring up is sitting on the front for no reason. Mm-hmm. So I call that the big dumb horse. And I say that somewhat endearingly because I have been one of the biggest, dumbest horses <laughs> I've ever met. Mr. Clydesdale. Just because I enjoy it. I mean, but you are a
0: big jar with a big mouth. No, big jar with a small mouth. You're also a big horse with a small. In the, you're an Small that you're brain. Small
1: in the part. Oh, thank you.
0: A big dumb horse with a small jar brain. Okay, thanks. Something That's like uh, that.
1: the most unflattering description <laughs> I've gotten in a while. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. So, on behalf of big dumb horses with small brain jars, what it, Jar brains? Know. What was it? Should that? I just call you a Canadian? That works. There you go. We'll go with that. Every, every Canadian's coming after you now. <laughs>
2: Oopsie. They're too polite to cross the border. Yeah, about true. All That's true. Right. true.
1: I am still embarrassed by the fact that we finally had an episode where we had two Canadians as guests. So it was three <laughs> Canadians, one American. And a quiet... I'm not... And we I'm were like, still I'm, cracking Canada
0: jokes. Yeah. You were talking about Justin Bieber and all these famous Canadians that you had something for and I was like, "Really? You're going to go with Justin Bieber as your?" <laughs> no, I, that was all. Mike Woods, I think that <laughs> was. I think
1: he brought it up. No, I'm I'm going with Rush. Sorry. All right. Well, that's yeah. I was actually just the other night coming back from Red Rocks, I introduced my my nephew to to Rush because he hadn't really heard them. Like, "You can't call yourself Canadian." Yeah. Yeah, and we just played Rush the whole way back. There you go. He, he was very excited when I put on the song "YYZ" and he's like, "Oh, I get what that's about." No American gets it. It's the code for the Toronto airport. Oh, Oh.
2: (laughs) that makes sense. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, lots of Y's and Z's in Toronto.
1: This is not helping us with energy whatsoever. All right. So back to the big, dumb horse, get it on the front. You expend a lot of energy Mm. and there's a temptation with a lot of riders. If you can't think of something good to do, the, well, I'll just sit in the field and save energy, feels stressful, or you feel like you need to do more. So the reaction is, well, get on the front and, and push the pace. Or maybe they're
2: thinking, I'm not getting a workout.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Right. This is
2: a race, damn it. Let's go fast.
1: Anytime you are on the front, the first thing to do is ask yourself, why am I here? And if you can't immediately come up with a good reason, get off the front.
2: Anytime you're in the wind, even if you're on a breakaway, you should really... The purpose of pulling is to either improve your chances of winning or doing better in the race or your teammates' chances of winning or doing better in the race. That's it. There is no other reason to pull in a bike race. Everyone signed waivers and pinned on numbers. Your objective is to beat as many people as possible. You are actually compromising that ability most of the time when you're pulling, especially if you're being the big dumb horse. If you're in a breakaway, you have to make a decision. How how is the relative strength of the other riders in the breakaway compared to me? Am I going to try to attack them before I... Reach the finish and get away so I don't have to deal with a sprint, or am I the fastest sprinter in this break by far? In which case, I want to make everyone as cohesive as possible because I know my chances of winning are very high. But if you've got no teammates and the breakaway is gone and the field slows down and you get impatient or bored, you feel like you're not getting enough KJs in or whatever, (laughs) that's not the time to go to the front. I've been in a million bike races and all of them eventually heat up again. You just have to be patient. Everyone is thinking the same thing. Well, most everyone, they're all thinking, man, I can't believe we're just sitting here coasting at 20K an hour. That breakaway is getting minute after minute after minute right right now. That means an explosion is coming. And if you just go to the front and ride along at 26 miles an hour doing nothing, then when the explosion comes, you're just setting up the other riders to annihilate you.
1: A really good way I had bike racing described to me is it's a game of chicken. Don't Mm. be the first one to flinch. Mm -hmm. When it's going really slow and a breakaway is going up the road and you're getting nervous.
2: Yes. Everybody Everybody else is is getting getting nervous. nervous. Let
1: somebody else flinch first. Let them get on the front and do the pulling.
2: Or start attacking.
1: All right. Let's flip
0: it around. What are the best ways to save energy? Which is really what we're talking about here, saving the energy to release it at the best times. So Colby, Trevor, I'll turn it over to you guys. What are your
2: favorite ways? What are your best?
0: Right in the field when nothing's
1: going on. Do we need to say more
2: than that? (laughs) (laughs) Colby? Yeah. Well, I'd say there's that arrowhead sweet spot. You know, you want to be, yeah, 18th, 20th, 25th wheel in a big peloton tends to be where you're you're you can see what's happening you're still you're not taking yourself out of the race you're not completely passive but at the same time you can save a lot of energy depending on whether you're riding up upwind or downwind and kind of tucking yourself into that place Um, that's where a lot of clever riders tend to hide out and when you want to really check um little column a little column b in terms of saving energy but also still not checking out completely and riding at the back that's a smart way to do it I've, i've spoken
0: with uh Payson McElveen a couple times now in, in recent months, and he's a mountain biker, but he's been doing a lot of these gravel races. And I talked to him. They're long. These gravel races tend to be really long races. And I always ask him the, the, the question, so what's your strategy? And his, his stock answer is kind of the same every time. It's be bored. As long as possible. Yeah, which is meaning
2: don't pull, don't, don't smash. Be don't. patient.
0: You got to be patient. It's yeah. about sitting. It's about waiting. It's about waiting for that right moment. It's mm-hmm. conserving. It's the, all those zeros and zeros. Mm-hmm. You're choosing zeros rather than ones. You're yeah. you're just conserving. And for certain people, that means being bored. For other mm-hmm. people, it's not about boredom. It's about conservation. Yeah. But I'm with patience. Like that's my struggle in long road races is having the patience, mm. dealing with the boredom of just sitting there and mm-hmm. waiting for the right moment. But yeah. that's how you win bike
1: races sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I do it by what I call the average power game, which is when you're in those couple hours of the race where nothing's going on. I watch my average power and play this game of how low, how can, low can I get can it? it. go? Yeah.
0: yeah, it's like trying to drive your car and getting the max miles per gallon yeah. out of it. Yeah, yep. Trying to
1: maximize gas mileage. I yep. still remember the last. So a few years ago at Cascades, not the last time I was at Cascades, second last time, we had a rider on our team. It was We had just finished the flat stage, which was, you know, nothing was going to happen. It was going to finish in a field sprint, but it was still three and a half, four hours. And back at our, our host house, he was showing everybody his files. I was like, look at this average 263 watts. And I'm just <laughs> sitting there going, oh, you're going to pay for that tomorrow. Yeah. Why did you do that?
2: <laughs> yeah. Don't brag about it either. <laughs> Yeah. Races are not places to average, to shoot for high average powers. You know, unless you're talking about the lookout mountain hill climb, that's a 20 minute hill climb or whatever. And you're just smashing even there. It doesn't make sense to go for it necessarily because again, wind factors into most races, unless you're talking about a hill climb that averages 20%, mm-hmm.
1: you're still doing work for other people. So, so you, you want to practice the energy game, the, this whole or average power, or whatever you want to call it. There's this practice, not wasting energy. I used to love to do this. I would go to the the weekly Wednesday night training race. And when I was getting pretty close to some target races, I would go into that race. And my rule was I couldn't break a 155 heart rate. Mm. And it's figuring out how to stay with the field, stay with the leaders without ever doing a really big efforts. Yeah. That's
0: interesting too. And and doing that on us, like if you can do that week to week on the same course, you can see improvements. You can experiment with things and try different Mm -hmm. things and try to bring that number down, that average power down.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't do it every time because I do believe sure. in going to training races to rip yeah, yourself yeah. apart. But I would have yeah. a couple in a row where I go, now I'm going to go to practice, surfing wheels, staying in mm-hmm. the right spot. So I'm never in trouble.
2: Yeah, I've, I've given my riders that kind of task list in training races from time to time. I'll ask them to treat, especially a flat crit. Those are the most useful ones from a coaching perspective because you can do anything you want with them. You can have them go to the front and smash themselves into oblivion. You can have them sit in and try to time sprints. Or you can have them float treat like motor pacing. And I'll tell right. them. I want you to never hit the wind today. You're doing as little work as possible. And I also want you to give me a report card of who did what. So I make them watch the tactics of other riders. This rider attacked five times. This rider pulled, you know, for no reason for 5k or whatever. And Mm -hmm. then we all dropped him later or whatever. And then a lot of times that's a useful exercise because it keeps the rider from getting bored. It also teaches them to focus externally instead of internally on their own sensations. And it helps them sharpen their tactical acumen because they're, Starting to look around and realize the patterns of racing and see the bad decisions that other riders are making or the clever decisions that other riders are making. Sometimes they see like, man, I can't believe this guy just ninjaed his way across to that breakaway. How did he do that? I barely even saw him do it. Right. And if you were busy following wheels or you're already in the break, you wouldn't have seen that. So it can be a good lesson. You
1: know. well, that's, that's a great point. I don't think you can be a great racer until you can read the field. Yeah. Sense what's going on. Yeah. Multiple-time Grand Fondo world champion Bruce Bird is one of those guys who you just assume will be there when the winning breakaway forms in the race. I asked him about it, and he felt this ability to be in the moves comes from having a sense for the field.
4: There's a time when the field, you can just feel some of the other riders, okay, they're not sticking in, they're not taking turns. You know, in some races, like in these Grand Fondos, the world championship, where 400 people are trying to win in your five-year age category, and it's on, so it's the right time to go is as soon as you can. And as soon as you can, it might be a half hour from now. I don't know, like, it says for an hour. so Because everyone else is going hard all the time. It's, they're, it's, they're, it's crazy. It's such, so on. You have to have your fitness so ready for those. Because what's happening on the road in front of you, like, oh, you just caught this wave in front of you. They're all over the road. You have to navigate your way through the holders on these descents where people are crawling out from over the, you know, the passage over the corners because they've wiped out and they're all bloody. You're, like, streaming down the hill and then someone's like, oh, here, someone's going fast. They jump on the wheel, you're like, get out of my way! You know, like, they speak a different language. You're like, oh, 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 oh. You know, let me get behind the guy that I'm following. Uh, and, and I just feel like in those races, how much you've to use your voice amongst, amongst all everything else to help direct people and, and get yourself where you need to. These I mean, races are different. uh be ready for all sorts of different scenarios that happen out on the road when like 2,000 riders are out there
1: running. Yeah, but as you said, there's so much craziness. It's, you, you, you can't rationalize it. You have to have the sense.
4: Yeah, and if you wait around and try gaming it, well, I don't know. I haven't seen that work at all.
1: Let's get back to the show and talk about how you learn to play the energy game.
2: My advice as people are climbing categories is always, almost always the same. Which is when you get to the top of your given category, if you're a four and you want to become a three, if you're a three and you've got enough points to become a two, wait as long as possible. Hmm. Make them kick you out. Why? Because you learn the most when you're at the top of your category. When you're getting points and you're winning races or close to winning races, that's when you're learning how to win races. When I was 17, there was this unspoken rule. All of us had this race to become ones as fast as we could and we thought it was cool but it didn't really serve us because we didn't spend much time in the lower categories working our way through. When you're a four and you're winning fours races, that's when you get the best lessons. That's when you make the biggest mistakes. You go, oh, I could have won that, but I jumped too early. And then three guys went around me, but I know I was the strongest guy. You'll never forget that moment. But if you skip that race to go to threes and hang on for another three months in threes races and be mid pack, it would take you another year to get to the point where you're going to learn that lesson potentially. So I always advise riders to pause Just stay at the top of the category as long as you can until they kick you out. And the best case scenario is when the whole field gets pissed at you because you're winning so much and they gang up on you. Yeah. Then you're going to learn amazing lessons. Yeah. You got 80 people racing against you. Everybody wants you to lose. (laughs) That's the best time to win a race or get your teeth kicked in. You're going to learn either way. There's no you can do no wrong at that point.
1: Strength doesn't win races. Strength buys you a ticket to the poker table. Then you have to learn how to play poker. Well said. And a lot of guys don't understand that too. No, that's mine, actually. Really? Yeah. Are you sure? Uh, Every once a while, this <laughs> dumb horse brain comes up with dumb, something. Dumb horse brain. Gets it out of the coach medium, me dumb, size dumb horse jar brain or whatever.
2: I forgot about the jar size. That. I
1: have my moments. <laughs> so what else? What are other ways to, to save energy? Think
2: like a sprinter. I like that one. I do have some really quick sprinters that I'm coaching right now. And sometimes I have to remind them there's a good chance you're the fastest guy in this race. So act like it. What does that mean? If you follow someone in a breakaway, why would you drive the breakaway super hard? Maybe at the most, you're going to match the contribution of the next strong, of the guy who's pulling the hardest at the most. Why would you pull harder? And sometimes they'd really have to think about that. You're the fastest guy there. Don't burn yourself out driving a breakaway to, to the line when if you'd stayed in the field, you probably would have won anyway, or there's a good chance you'd be top three anyway. Again, it goes back to if you're in the wind, it's got to directly affect your chances of either winning or doing better or your teammates. So when you think like a sprinter... Even if you're not, it can be a useful exercise because sprinters, in the classic broad brush sense, are afraid to hit the wind. They don't need to. Mm -hmm. Why? Because when it comes together at the line, they're going
1: to win. So it can be a useful exercise to think like that at times and conserve, conserve, conserve. I think I've told this story on this show before, but I absolutely love this story. and It was back, I think, in the 90s. And it was a race where two past national champions ended up in a breakaway together. One was just big threshold engine breakaway guy. The other guy was a pure sprinter, a really good sprinter. And the sprinter sat on the breakaway rider for like an hour, would not pull through to the point that the breakaway rider just got really upset and finally just slows down and turns around and goes, are you going to take a pull? And the sprinter just calmly rides up alongside and goes, look, you have a choice. I'm not going to take a pull. So we can go back to the field where I'm going to win. I get a sit in and I'm going to win and you're going to get 20th. Yep. Or you can tow me to the line where I'm still going to win but and you'll get, get second. Silver. Yeah. And apparently the, the breakaway guy thought about it for a win win. Silver's great. Yeah. <laughs> Towed him to the line and took silver. Yeah. Sometimes that's your choice. Mm-hmm. I've been in that
2: situation many times.
1: But that's also an example of a guy who just went, why would I waste any energy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it was yeah. It was cold, it was mean. Mm-hmm. I guess it, it that, that, that's no, that's one of those things, I guess too. that's it's not quite right, but yeah. No,
2: cold and mean, are, it was honest. It was truthful. Yeah. I can appreciate that. Better that than, oh, I'm not going to sprint you. And then suddenly a line comes and whacks right, off. Goes. Yeah. Right, right.
0: Yeah, you know, that's something that comes with experience, too, is knowing that you can play that card. Mm-hmm. That you can play that game. Like, hey, look, here's the logic. Mm-hmm. And this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yep. And you can accept it or you cannot. You can get mm-hmm. frustrated with me, but this is, this is how it's going to yeah. play out. Not everybody has the confidence as a bike racer to do that all the time. They Indeed. might
2: just be like, uh, I'm sorry. Know or, you know,
0: Okay, I'll, I'll That brings it. up a
2: great point. There are times when you can be in a breakaway and other riders can goad you into working harder than you oh, should yeah. be working. Mm-hmm. And this, go- I always come back to the same concept here, which is, look, everybody pinned on a number. Everybody signed a waiver. This is a competitive bike race. We all have a handshake agreement that we're trying to beat each other to mm-hmm. the line. Right, it's your choice. If you want to sit on a breakaway because you're smoked or hanging on for dear life, and then you come to life at the finish, that's fair game. Like people may call you a jerk. In my codebook of ethics of bike racing, whatever, the only reason you're a jerk is if you outright lie to someone. If you tell them I am not going to sprint you, and then, sprint. then you sprint, you sprint them, to them, yeah, that's unethical, so to speak. You're a dick. Yeah, you're dick. But <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, if the person, if you make no verbal agreement, if you're if it's not clear what your intentions are. If they're dumb enough to tow you to the line, you should be smart enough to sprint them. That was their choice. But also, its your it should be your conscious choice how much you decide to contribute to any given breakaway at any given moment. If you want to barely spit through and someone else wants to destroy themselves and prove how strong they are, great. Let them. Let, let them. Em. It's not a fitness contest. It's a bike race. Yeah. Call those guys booster rockets. Right? That's to your advantage. Yeah. The way to play that, if you want to be a bit tactically clever, is to do just enough to pacify that, that big dumb, what was our analogy? Big, Big dumb horse. Big dumb horse and let him think that he's going to smash the race single-handedly and rip you off his wheel on a flat road even though he's not or she's not and just let her do her thing. And then you're sitting back there just spitting through, just doing enough to pacify them. And then you get to the line and you yep, you get to win a bike race. And there's nothing immoral or unethical about that. It's a bike race. People who conserve energy win races. Mm-hmm. A lot of, especially lower-ranked amateur riders, painting uh, with a broad brush again, tend to have a preconception. Even a lot of ones and twos have a conception that you don't have the the right or you haven't earned the right to win a race unless you're the strongest, man, I'm here to tell you that's a pile of crap. That's not <laughs> what bike racing is about. No. As Trevor said, strength gets you to the poker table. Then you get to play your cards, but you can't, you can't win the game if you're not sitting at the table. And you also can't win the game if you suck at poker. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. I think in terms of, of professionals that I think of when you're, as we discuss this, I think of someone like Valverde, who yes. often gets the reputation of a guy that is a wheel sucker. But look at his career. Look at his Palmares. He's won yeah. a ton. And because it's he's used his intelligence, he's used these it's tactics like that it. are available to him to do what he does, which is win bike races. Smart bike racer.
1: On the flip side of this, you brought up a really good point. A great way to waste energy is to get caught up in the mind games. Yep. People are going to try to bully you. They're going to insult you. Mm-hmm. They're going to do all mm-hmm. sorts of things to try to get you to do stupid moves. Mm-hmm. I still remember Mount Hood, 2011. We had the we had Chad in the leader's jersey, so my job was to cover moves. And I got in this breakaway of about 15 riders, and they're all screaming at me to take poles. I'm sitting there going, I'm not going to help you beat my teammate. Yeah. Why would I take a poll? Right. They were calling me every name in the book. They were chopping my wheel. My favorite one is this guy chops my wheel and then goes. They rape people like you in prison. Jeez. Oh. Yeah, some take people can be far. pretty aggressive. <laughs> and they
0: also, speaking of when you're moving up through the ranks, if you're the new guy in the field and it's a local race and they'll take advantage – they're your fresh meat. They'll, they'll try to take advantage <laughs> of the fact that you're a little bit greener or something like that and try to goad you into doing things you shouldn't do. <laughs> and so you
1: have to – be wary of that. Have a
2: little discretion. Yeah.
1: yeah. So it's yeah. exactly like you said. Don't say you're going to do something and not do it. Right. Then they have the right to be upset with you. But you probably did the best job you could
2: on that day, Trevor, because you you were barely doing anything and you were upsetting the continuity of that break. Right. And we you got had, caught. If you had caught. Right. So obviously all that anger and that breakaway, that's not going to make a constructive move. People are too focused right. on you, too worried about you. Rather than, which isn't what they should have been focused on. Mm-hmm. And it's funny how that works because the psychology of a breakaway can be very dictated by one rider. One guy starts yelling at you and then the other guys all of a sudden are paying attention oh, to the fact yeah. that you're sitting on. Why well, is this guy getting a free ride? You know? right. None of them are smart enough to figure out you're wearing the same jersey as the leader. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. At that point, you have two choices. You, you can explain it to them, which may or may not
1: pacify them. But your goal isn't to pacify them. Your goal is to disrupt the breakaway. The fact of matter half of them knew what I was doing and knew it was the right thing. They just wanted to they, see if they could get me <laughs> right, to work, yeah, yeah. if they could bully me anyway. Yeah. yeah. So don't don't fall for those. Don't waste a ton of energy because somebody called you a name. Right. Go, wait wait till the parking lot afterwards. Go shake hands, offer them a beer, and yeah, it's usually pretty cool.
2: Hey man, I don't know if you knew this, but my guy was winning the race, and now he's still in the jersey. So
1: yeah. Shall we tell some stories
0: about when to spend energy? Those critical moments in a race when
1: mm. you don't hold back. So I will start it off as the pure domestique. If you have a guy in the leader's jersey, as we were just talking about, and I will say I didn't do much work in that breakaway, but part of it was because I knew as soon as we were getting caught,
3: were I was spending up the up.
1: rest of the race on the front. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, I was spending, I spent 20K chasing down Zerbel. Mm. That was the worst 20K <laughs> of my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're a domestique, your job is to waste energy until you're dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's your job. Yep. Yep. Or to be... One of my favorite games is to play the welder. If you have a, a
2: feisty peloton early in the in the race and you've got the leader's jersey, you have someone who's placed well on GC, or you have a rider that you want to be in a certain breakaway, this is a very effective way to use energy is when your rider's not in any breakaway, you weld the field together, which means you jump just hard enough so that you're sure everyone's on your wheel. And then as soon as you get up to speed, you just go and close the gap and weld it together and then you watch and the next breakaway goes and if your guy's not in that you weld again and if the next guy your guy's not in the next one you weld again and then the next break your guy goes and then you kind of just hang out in the gutter and let people do their thing and chase and hopefully the gap goes and then if it gets caught you start welding again and reset yeah. mm-hmm. that's a great way to to constructively use your energy to help your teammates set up the right breakaway or maybe if you're if your team is leading a category Like a KOM, for example, and you want to make sure your guys in the break to go get more KOM points Mm -hmm. would be an example of that. Mm -hmm. Or you want your sprinter to get in the break, as an example. Or if you have the leader and you guys say, uh, you know, a common tactic before the night before the race would be, we're going to allow these GC guys to go up the road, but not these three. So you're just watching. And you weld it back together. That's a great time to do it. Another time is going into a technical section like Chris was talking about. It's not the worst idea in the world to ramp the field up a bit or use a bit of energy when you're heading into that dirt section or that chicane or that or the base of a climb. Using energy moving up there is smart because it's going to benefit you. And in a crosswind, in my opinion, a strong crosswind, especially if you know the Peloton knows what they're doing and they're going to use it correctly, you literally cannot use too much energy (laughs) to be in the top eight. It's like you might as well treat it like the finish line because that's what it is. I've seen races below absolute smithereens and crosswinds where you've been had 200 rider pelotons in eight groups mm-hmm. and it can be the difference between making the first group or the second group and it's literally a sprint in that
1: first 500 meters of crosswind everybody talks about how much climbs hurt i will still say the most painful thing in bike racing is being guttered in a crosswind. Mm-hmm. there is nothing to me more painful you're, you're shaking your head well oh, you've done the no, hour I'm, record I'm, I'm the arrow guy too
2: <laughs> so even a 12-rider group with me in the gutter is less painful than me being on some
1: 9% percent percent grade. Or <laughs> that, that's deep. fair. I'm, I like the climbs. <laughs> yeah, that's where yeah. I, I, I'm a little happier, so I don't like that being guttered. Yeah. But I will say it's a good thing to practice. If you have a, a weekly group ride and you have some crosswinds, be mm-hmm. mean to one another. Gutter one another. Mm-hmm. Get the totally. to practice. Yeah. Agreed. But within context, of course, you can't use a whole lane if you've got these things called cars. Yes. That the roads are actually made for. Um, just so, you know. <laughs> be careful of that. <laughs> but you are bringing up another point that, that's a big one for me, which is every race has two or three points that are do or die moments. Yeah. You either need to be there or your race is over. And it mm-hmm. kills me when I talk with athletes after the race and they go, well, it got really hard and that was a critical moment in the race. But I looked down and you know I was above my five-minute power. Right. So I, I held back. You just go – Screw the Why? Numbers. Because you're out of the race.
2: That's a great example of using a metric as the absolute instead of as what it is, which is a proxy. Right. Data is for post-race analysis. It's for post-mortem analysis. You look back and see, this is what I did right. This is what I did wrong. This is the time and zones I spent. That helps me gives me an idea of how hard the race was. So I have to know if my training is actually training me well enough to be ready for a race like this yeah. or, you know, etc. But yeah, it's a great example of using the metrics in the wrong quote, wrong,
1: in a suboptimal way, I'll say. It's mm-hmm. not wrong, yeah.
2: but you could you could use them more effectively.
1: But those are black and white moments in the race, where it's either yeah. you are there or your you're race or is not. over. Either so you give it everything.
2: Up. You follow that guy's wheel, and you pull, you literally give yourself a root canal to follow his wheel until you get across to the breakaway. And then you hang on for dear life for a kilometer until you're barely recovered enough to start pulling. And then you pull as hard as you can, every single pull from there to the line, and that's how the break makes it. It's a very common race experience. And it's miserable while you're doing it. Racing isn't fun until after you cross the line. And then you go, man, that was so awesome. We went 400 miles an hour around that corner. And we were going so hard in the flat road. But while you're doing it, it sucks. Yes. That's how racing works.
1: Well, there's that great great story of Swain Tuff. I think it was at Fitchburg. This was before he had gone pro. It was right before he signed with Saturn, quite literally. Because he got in the breakaway. And he was a little heavier at the time and not as strong as he is now. And he was dying. And the story goes, at one point, he took his pole, moved to the right to let the next guy through, leaned over, threw up, (laughs) didn't miss his next pole. Yeah, Yeah. And there were two Saturn guys in the breakaway. And they went back to their team manager and said, the the guy's a little (laughs) chunky, and he he, he needs to be a little stronger, but you can't teach that. (laughs) And they signed him.
2: Nice. And then he's a legend. Yep. That was probably the year he rode to training camp. He had many
1: of those years. Yeah. yeah. With the trailer with his dog on the back. That guy's unbelievable we got to just do an episode of Swain's stories, get them on. Absolutely. they <laughs> would love to. Yeah, love to. Sleeping on the side of the road and do encountering th- a bear, things like that. Do okay. you think those two Canadians
0: versus me, uh, i get picked on at all? Or do you think, is he... Oh, he would snap like a twig. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he was physically in the room, yes, he would probably destroy me.
1: <laughs> I have always said, I can't tell you how many times riders have said to me in the Peloton, I will see you in the parking lot. And I'm like, tell me where. I'll be there. Yeah. If Swain said to me, I will see you in the parking lot... I'm pulling out of the race and I'm getting the heck out of town. <laughs> Y'all see you there. Bye. But he's a pacifist. He like meditates in the woods before he races. Does. He does. Do you know what he does in the winter? Yeah. He actually competes in ultimate fighting, mixed martial yeah. arts. Yeah. His team was pissed at him because he showed up to the March training camp one year with a broken arm. That's <laughs> well, understandable. But he probably responded, "Well, both my legs work. Yeah, let's go train. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Yeah." Okay, that's not saving energy at all.
2: No,
0: nope. Uh, nope. that's spending energy.
1: What but, are other ways to spend energy? My favorite, I
0: and I think a lot of people's favorite, is probably when they see blood in the water, it's time to go. Hurt people. Mm. You know, if you notice that somebody is struggling, if you see those signs and you feel it's... Attack. Attack. Go for it. So right. every time you and I go up a climb? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, whenever I, I don't even have to see the signs with you. That you're struggling. I just want to do it, just like daggers. <laughs> yeah, well, it's
1: like <laughs> I, I wow. gave him a, a little bit of a layup to to put me down, and yeah. boy, did you dunk that and do a
0: dance! It's pretty much anybody on a climb. This is what this is my one thing? strength.
1: How do you do a poo-poo boy or whatever his his Excuse name me? is? A
2: poo-poo boy, <laughs> poopoo cough. Is that you
0: talking? Yes.
1: About? <laughs> oh, that's Lachlan. <laughs>
2: that's a that's a Strava handle. We just gave it away. Uh, he doesn't go by that anymore. He had, sure he oh, had, we can give that he away. Had,
0: he had two accounts. One, he would call himself Pupukov, which is a rap, rapper's name, I believe. And then something else. And But now he actually has a Strava account. that is, is a, a real normal. handle. He okay, does. He does. Yeah. Anyways, not saving energy there either. And then
1: the obvious one, you see the finish line.
2: Yeah. See the finish line.
1: Don't save it.
2: Yeah. At that point. A time trial? Especially a short one? Yeah. I mean, obviously, that's oversimplified, you've got pacing to consider, but it's the opposite of what we're talking about in general, which is use expend your energy as effectively as you can over the course so that your
1: battery is completely empty by the end. Zero. Yeah. One yeah. thing I do see with people time trial, and you can speak more of this than, than me, is I see them overpace themselves, mm. meaning they're too concerned about blowing up, and so they go at a pace that they know they can do to the finish line. Mm. I always tell my athletes, if you're going at pace where you – Ask yourself, can I hold this to the end? And you go, oh, I don't know. That's I mean, going to be tough. Yeah. That's the right pace.
2: My takeaway from that is you should hit 1K to go and think, okay, I'm either going to maintain this lossy <laughs> to the line or pass out. I'm not sure which. Yeah. And then you paced it pretty well. The last K should be absolutely hanging on for dear life on a, in a flat course or a evenly paced course, that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep.
0: Any others, guys? I think, like Colby said, right at the very beginning of the show, the breakaway – is a sprint stage in reverse for those break riders you want to mm-hmm. attack if you know it's the one if you want to make it the one it's attack as hard as possible to establish that break that's your sprint the for move. the day
2: yeah yeah that can be it can be appropriate again it comes down to the wasp nest effect of the field yeah. how whipped up everybody is there are times like chara said you Absolutely, can attack yeah. at 1200 watts and go nowhere right and there are other times where you can just go bloop, and all yeah. of a sudden you've got an instant gap sure so you got to be clever about that but agreed If if your objective is to really make the race happen at a certain point and
1: you're confident you're going to happen, then throw down. Throw your trips on the table and see what happens. One of the biggest mistakes I see people make in the breakaway is not spending enough energy. I mean, often if you want to try to get in the breakaway, you're going to have to go with a few. But if you're in that breakaway where you think this one's got a chance, you have to approach it as if we get caught, my day is done.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. That's That's a good good way to look at it. Yeah. There's no holding back thinking like, oh, we're going to get caught and then I'm going to do something again. It's
1: This is it. This is my move. Yeah. I'm giving this everything I've got. We get caught. I'm finishing I'm over. 20 minutes down. Yeah.
2: That said, I will add, there's some tactical nuance to that, which goes back to my comment about contributing to a breakaway. You should always think about your contribution to the breakaway in terms of what are the other riders doing? Am I doing 10% more right. than the next strongest mm-hmm. rider or the next most contributing rider? It's really strength is not irrelevant, but in terms of your own contribution, you need to look at it as how much is everyone else contributing? And, the, and it's not speed. It's not even time. It's, it's, you feel it. Right. Are they accelerating and are they pulling long and hard?
1: But there are, there are stages to that. Yes. When you are asserting a breakaway. You got to drive it to make sure the gap is established. I, I hate when I hear about guys going, oh, we had five of us. We, we were starting to get a gap in the field, but there was one guy sitting on. Yeah. Let him sit on, establish a break. Yeah. Then, then deal with them.
2: Yeah. Then sure. discuss. So once the break is established, then you've got more of that. Okay. Let's analyze this a bit how hard should I be pulling contributing to the other guys? That right. depends on a lot of factors. If this is the first time you've ever been in a breakaway or ever had a chance to get a top five, then it would be perfectly reasonable to say, I'm going to obliterate myself in this thing because I just really want to be top five. Even if all of the four riders drop me at the end and I get fifth, I'm going to be super psyched because it's the best result I've ever had. Okay. That's a big step forward for you. Understood. But you do that a few times and you go, okay, now I want to be a little more clever. I want to be top three. It's not good enough for me to be... The last guy crossed the line in a seven-man breakaway anymore. I'm going to start comparing my effort to the other efforts and contributions of the other riders in the breakaway. And then you you do that enough. And then you say, all right, now I've got the hunger, man. I want to win a bike race. And then you can be more selective about your races. And you can say, does this constitution of this breakaway really suit me? I've got this super strong dude in here and this amazing sprinter in this break. You know what? I don't like this. This sucks. I'm going to kill it. And you sit on. Even though the break is established, even though those guys are all working hard, that's your choice. And then you're win-win either way because if you kill it and they all get frustrated you come back to the pack, you have reset your opportunity to do something else. Maybe you counter when they get frustrated or maybe you counter when you get back to the group or you fall another on attack. It happens all the time. Or conversely, you, you stay out in the break and those guys drive to the line and they curse you and call you bad names the whole time but you never tell them the gig's up and then you've got a much more fair chance to beat that sprinter to the line because... They all worked and you didn't. That's okay.
1: I'm i a breakaway rider. And one of the things I love the most about breakaways is... You don't have to sprint? Well, yes. I do like (laughs) that element of it. But here's the fact about breakaways that you always have to deal with as a breakaway rider. I don't care who's in the breakaway. If the field wants to catch you, they will catch you. So the art of breaking away is figuring out how to do it in a way to convince the field to let you win.
2: Really, I think of a breakaway as you're still sprinting. You're just putting the sprint at the beginning. Sure. There you sure. Go. That's another way to look at it.
1: But I remember being uh, Mount Hood 2007, the first road stage. We had a breakaway of about 20 riders that got a good, I think it was about 14, 15 minutes up the road. And HealthNet got on the front, brought it back.
2: Mm-hmm. If
1: they want to, they'll do it. If yeah. the field wants to, they can bring the breakaway 95% back. 95% of the time. Yeah. I mean,
2: there's some course yeah. variability in that. If you get a good climber and a break and they get a gap, the peloton, there may not be that much they can do. It all depends on the relative strength of the riders. But yes, in general, I agree. For most courses, that's true. It's about breaking down the will of the other riders.
1: Continuing with that, you just reminded me of something. If you are going with a breakaway, it's rarely the first attack or the, the first breakaway is the one to succeed. It's usually a counter off of a shorter-lit breakaway. Yeah. So if you're in one of those breakaways it's not going to succeed, don't keep your head down until the field catches you. That's when you ease up, find your energy, knowing there's, there's going to be a be counter move, move and I'm going to move over and jump on that. And that could be the winning move.
2: It's like, it's like reading War and Peace. There's always another chapter. On that, <laughs> yeah. Right? It, or it goes back to that analogy you used earlier about how there's a line you don't really cross. There's a line in terms of season efforts or daily efforts, but there's also a line within races. And you probably have one really, really deep race. Where are you going to use that? Or deep effort during a race. Where are you going to use that? Are you saving it for the finish or are you saving it for 5k to go on that little roller where you're going to drop the breakaway right. or are you make are you using it in the beginning to barely make the breakaway and, and then you use it up and okay, now we see what happens from there.
1: Kind of continue with that when you go to the, the post-mortem, analyze your power. Yes. You have a really good race. You might see, hey, I just PR'd a five-minute power for this year, but you never analyze a race and go, hey, I just PR'd my five-minute power five times in that race. Right. <laughs> yeah. You get it once.
2: Yeah. You it once. Pick, pick your moment. And the only contribution I would have would be in a longer race, a stage race, you really want to pick your stages carefully kind of thing. Yeah. All righty.
0: You've done this many times before. 60 seconds to give us all your takeaways from this episode on the energy game. Trevor.
1: Well, horse,
0: big dumb horse.
1: Oh, you just stole that from me. It's <laughs> about to say. Since my big dumb horse brain only gets a moment about every 20 episodes, I'm going to be completely vain and make my my one minute my moment. Strength buys you a ticket to the poker table, but you got to learn how to play poker. That means when you're in a race, observe, see what's going on with the field. Watch what other riders do. Start figuring out when it's effective, when it's not effective. Play these games like go to the training race and figure out – how do I average the lowest power possible and still finish with the lead group or keep the heart rate down? Start experimenting, practicing all these things so you can really learn that when you expend energy, when you take that jar and you turn it over a bit, you're having an impact.
0: Chris? I think I'll use my dumb self as the example this time and uh, talk about patience because I have very little of it in certain situations and certain types of races. And I think that can often play against you and will is a detriment to your success at races. So just finding ways to be patient. And that goes to some of the things you just mentioned. If it's playing games with yourself, trying to bring your average power down or trying to float through and and find ways to to conserve energy in, in your position it's doing these things to remain patient, be, quote, bored as long as possible, if necessary, because that is going to increase your chances of doing well. Colby, you have found a new flow state. You've got 60 seconds. Please take it away and give us your takeaway.
2: <laughs> well, you stole my word there. Flow state, I think that's what it's about, is ultimately as a racer within the context of tactics, the demands of the event. Whether your fitness, your own abilities, knowing yourself as a rider, you have to try to achieve a flow state in any race. And that means you're going to blend intellectual perspective with your own intuitive side, what you feel, what you feel the Peloton is doing, what the right moment to act is. And the way to find flow state is to be in a relaxed mindset going into the race, be confident, be prepared, and then also to treat each decision you make in the Peloton as like a binary equation, a one or a zero A one being a positive choice and a zero being a negative choice. And when you're in a flow state, when you're intuitive and when you're sensing what's happening in the Peloton, you're using the metrics you have at your disposal, heart rate and power, distance time to help you formulate and add to that intuition and make those binary choices. And that equation is ultimately results in your performance on the day, either individually or how you help your team. After the race is the time for post-mortem analysis and looking at the data and understanding did I effectively achieve a flow state and did I actually utilize that system of ones and zeros to the best possible impact? Did I manage my energy correctly or did I use it at the wrong moment? That's what the data is for afterwards. It's
0: really interesting that you ended with a piece on the binary system, kind of a robotic Type mm. mentality, whereas we we started this conversation talking about Trevor's robot that actually tried to escape <laughs> from his apartment. Suicidal so, battle robot. So we've come full circle.
1: So I had my moment in this episode. Chris, that was not your moment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalkatvillanews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebookcom slash and on Twitter at twittercom slash Fast Talk is a joint production between Ville News and Connor Kochi. Thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Coley Pierce, Sepkoski, Bruce Bird, Trevor Connor. I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.